The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. The uh, second show of 2024 here. And... Uh, We've got uh, questions as usual lined up for you. If you want to send in your own questions for a future show, I'll share the instructions for that right now. The best way to do that would be to send those emails directly to Jim. He's the one who brings all these questions together, picks most of them, and and uh, brings them to the show. But his email address is jim at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And make sure in the subject line that you indicate that it's a question for the podcast, and it'll go into the uh, to the hopper or whatever device he uses to to store them and pluck them out. And uh, hopefully we can get to your question or at least one substantially similar in the not too distant future. We do uh, have a backlog a bit, so the I guess standard is that our questions are answered possibly several months after they've been submitted, but we do go out of our way to bring uh, timely questions to the show uh, and uh, also at least pluck out one question each week we call the new question of the week so people realize they've got a chance to get have their question answered almost immediately. So um, that's the, the format of the show. I guess if you're new to the show, thanks for joining us. Uh, we do two shows a week. Q&A show, which is the one you're listening here, where it's mostly listener-submitted questions. And then we also uh, record an EDU show, which is a topic of our choosing that may or may not be related to a listener question, but it's more of a, a focused deep dive into a singular topic over the show rather than the potpourri that you're going to get uh, in the Q&A show, where we'll have a whole mix of questions usually. So I'll bring in uh, Jim now to... Uh, um, produce said questions and I'll start off with a question to him. Uh, we did that lightning round format last week where we checked off about three or four within a few minutes. Um, did you get any feedback from people about if they liked that or not? And whether you got that feedback, uh, do we intend to do that again today? 
Uh, no feedback, so I have no idea if people liked okay. it or not. We actually got a lot of feedback on the EDU show from this week on the um, uh, defined tips, outcome ETFs, tips base defined ETFs. outcome tips ETFs. Yes, um, we got about four or five positive uh, replies or, or feedback mm-hmm. items. So that was good. I think people found that one uh, beneficial. But no, no, um, no. Positives or negatives on our attempt to answer 10 questions. I think we got through eight, didn't we? I think that yeah, set, think a set a record to begin yeah. with. Last week was a record for the quantity of questions. I won't say it was <laughs> the, the best answers we've ever produced. Some of them are pretty good, though. Uh, some um, of them I dive deep yeah. in. I uh-huh. won't say we gave juvenilistic uh-huh. answers at all. No. Uh, it's just I came across a few questions that could be answered quite quickly and easily. Yeah. Um, so it's a little okay, more work but, on your end to do the lightning rounds because you've got to gather together intentionally a handful of questions that we can answer quickly. So it might that might just warning the audience out there that that might that reason alone might kill this idea. <laughs> well, we we shall see. I have actually the two questions I'm going to ask you are lined up. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I haven't even pulled the ones. So while you are oh, wow. answering, I will be getting the questions that we'll address uh, after yours. Okay. So I'll let you know if they are more involved or if they're going to be lightning rounds. How's that? Okay, sounds but good. But let's jump in, folks, to the Social Security question. Uh, no state hint for this because they came to us from our blog. Or I should say Chris's blog. Help with my social security.com. That's where Chris will write every now and then when he has time. Uh, little blog articles on questions. So we occasionally get people going to it. They actually uh, were referred to that podcast by a colleague slash friend of ours, Andy Panko. So shout out to Andy. Thank you, Andy. Uh, so this person went to our podcast, excuse me, our website, a blog post. Uh, per Andy's recommendation. So I thought I would uh, jump it to the top of the list. It actually, well, top of the list, it came in three months ago. So that's getting to the top of the list quite quickly. (laughs) And uh, it begins, well, I'll tell you the state. Let me see if I can think of the state. It's named after a president. Washington. The mere fact that it took you that long, I'm going to say you failed. Well, I wanted to make sure it wasn't a trick question. That's the one that comes to mind, but I wanted to, I was rifling through my brain to make sure there so wasn't So you're quickly going through the other 49 states? Yeah. The other 43 states? Is that what you said? I said the other 49 oh, states. okay. Just making sure. Pay attention. <laughs> I just misheard it, hopefully. Okay. <laughs> All right. Anyways, from the state of Washington, it is a Georgette. We will call her, not by her real name, she gave it, but we will call her Georgette. And I think this one could apply to many people listening to this show because many people listening to this show do get stock option compensation. So it begins, my husband retired in 2015, started his Social Security in 2020 and exercised stock options in 2021 and 2022. We were surprised stock options would count as earnings in those years, as they were part of his compensation package way back in 2011 and 2012. Can you confirm 
that stock options should be considered earnings in the year they are exercised and thus caused us to have overpayment of Social Security in 2022 and 2023. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, Chris, what they're saying or what she's saying or asking, I'm, I feel the earnings test may have came into play with them, that he must have turned his Social Security on before reaching his full retirement age. And when she said overpayment, unless I'm missing something. Now, that's my interpretation, too. And as you kind of got into that question, I went to the uh, the POMS, uh, the Program Operations Manual System, which is the very detailed and lengthy uh, rules and regulations regarding Social Security and defining all of these things. So um, I'm glad they sent this in because this allows me to talk about some of the kind of I don't know, fringe uh, issues with the earnings test. So generally, the earnings test applies to people who are collecting Social Security and still working prior to their full retirement age. The month you turn your full retirement age, the earnings test goes away. So always remember that. There's always this hard stop on the application of the earnings test. What the earnings test essentially says is, and I'm not going to go super detailed in this. I want to get to the fringe part is that if you earn more than a certain amount, and that amount changes every year and is a bit unique in the year that you turn your full retirement age, but there's a defined amount of earnings that you can receive in the same year that you are receiving Social Security benefits. Uh, And if you exceed that amount, they will start reducing your Social Security benefits on either a $1 for every $2 over the limit or $1 for every $3 over the limit, depending on the year and the details. You'll have to listen to another show or look into those because I don't want to go too deeply that direction or this will take forever. So the general rule as far as what earnings count for this is that it is earnings from work done in the year that you are collecting the Social Security benefit in question. That's the general rule, and that applies probably 95-plus percent of the time. There's only there's very, very few exceptions that apply to very, very few individuals. So that means that um, money from investments, if you were to simply buy and sell stock options or stocks or bonds or take a distribution from your retirement account or you know, all the, or an interest at your bank, all those types of things, those are not earnings from work. So those are not going to be considered earnings for purposes of the earnings test. Now, there's a lot of compensation people earn while working that doesn't come in the form of regular, say, W-2 wages or self-employment income, which also would count towards the earnings test, but only if you're employed and doing the work in the year you're having those Social Security benefits paid to you. So they've got this big old list, and this is why I went to the Palms when uh, Jim got into this question far enough for me to realize what they were asking. And they have a big, long list that clarifies some of these maybe less common income sources and whether they should count for the earnings test or not. And I wanted to get this person a definitive answer because stock options that were granted to you as part of employment are covered in this list. So for you, if you want to look up the list yourself, so this is the original source material, um, what you would 
look for is you could search for Social Security POMS, P-O-M-S, M as in Mary, S. And then the actual um, document page is the section of the code is RS02505.240 entitled Summary of How Major Types of Remuneration Are Treated. So if you go to that page and you scroll down, it'll start, there's all these numbers. And let me go to the bottom and see how many there are. There are 88 specific types of remuneration listed here with, a, with clarification on how it's treated for determining if it is uh, income or earnings. And so I'm going to go up to, there it is, 73, number 73 on this page. It says stock option plan. And it's pretty short, so I'm just going to read it to you. Count as wages, and remember wages is earnings from work, and that's what we're worried about for the earnings test. It says, count as wages the difference between the fair market value of the stock at the time the option is exercised and the option price. Count these in the period the option was granted. That's key. So granted, then it says in parentheses, for example, the wage earner receives a W-2 for the sale of stock, but was granted the stock option earlier in their career. We count the wages in the period the stock option was granted. That's the whole entry for stock option plan, and that's my interpretation of what they're asking. They were granted stock options. He was back in 2011 and 2012 while he was working for some company. He held on to those stock options until 2021 and 2022 when he exercised them. But this says very clearly that, and this is true of a lot of other types of remuneration, they essentially tie it to when you earn it, not when you're paid it. So here those options just kind of sat there with no benefit to him, but then he decided to exercise them and the fair market value, the current selling price of the stock, was higher than the options price. So he made a profit, which was reported. Um, and somehow that, that appears to have been scraped into their earnings for the earnings test calculations. If they've gotten a notice that they were overpaid Social Security due to the earnings test. Now, I don't have their whole situation, so I don't know what other earnings might be in there. Maybe it isn't even the exercising of these stock options that was the issue. But if this is truly what's pushing you over, those should not be counted, and you should immediately reach out to Social Security and appeal their application of the earnings test. Because as long as you can provide information that those were granted to you back while you were working long ago, according to you, 2011 and 2012, that's when they would essentially look to apply those earnings. Uh, so they're backdating them. And so your 2021 and 2022 earnings from work would not be affected by you exercising those stock options. And that's generally true. The more common things, and, and I know there's a few of you out there, not tons of people that have these stock options, but that's the stock option wording specifically. Other cases that are more common is you have maybe sick leave or you have um, bonuses or something that you receive maybe. Let's say you stopped work at the end of the year, the end of the calendar year in December, but your bonus isn't paid out until January or February, or they don't get around to paying you until January or February, sick leave or, or something, annual leave or something like that. 
they ignore those too for the earnings test. They essentially say, no, you earned these last year just because you got paid those amounts here this this uh, here in let's say 2024 right we're January 12th as we record this if i had a bonus from work from december that was paid to me in january it's going to go on my 2024 income tax return right so but for purposes of the earnings test they will remove that but sometimes they're not going to pick up on it automatically. You're going to have to point it out to them and provide some sort of documentation. I think that's exactly what's going to happen if you go point it out to Social Security that these were stock options that were clearly granted long ago. You simply exercise them, and they should not be applied. And this another uh, this is also they also reference in this entry for stock option plan. IRS ruling 56-452. That's probably where they made the original uh, determination. That's how they were going to treat these stock options as they were exercised. So that is IRS ruling 56-452, which might mean that it's all the way back from 1956. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, um, I, I haven't bothered to look it up. I'll have to, I'll have to admit that. That is not... Uh, uh, that's that's a little deeper than I've ever dug <laughs> into this. So, so hopefully that was helpful. I think they're I think they're in good shape. Uh, the frustrating part is they will um, kind of default to their opinion and maybe even apply it, and then you'll have to appeal it. And then when they finally determine that you were right, they will true you up. They will make it make you whole again. Any benefits that they withheld essentially because they're claiming they overpaid you in 22 and 23 by not applying these, but then they suddenly realize they should, in their eyes, have have applied the earnings test. Uh, if they start withholding benefits from you here um, in the beginning part of 2024, if the appeal's successful, which I expect it to be based on what you've said, that they'll pay them pay anything they withheld from you back to you. So it might be annoying, you have to produce some paperwork, but I think you'll end up fine. See, here's my take on it. Mm -hmm. I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm not an expert on Social Security at all. But I know when they exercised the stock options that was taxable to them in 21 and 22, mm -hmm. the Social Security, I don't think they actually look at your return and try to determine what were the income sources. They're just looking at what you declared as legitimate taxable income no so how would no, they, they don't look at know? that they're no that's they're, no? that's not how they do it they pull it off your w-2 ah. and when you exercise granted stock options that and this would be a good question for our tax prep preparers because i haven't seen the documentation on this recently but my understanding is that the the person exercising those options that were granted as part of a reward program or what whatever you want to call it they get a w-2 for the sale of that stock. So that's going to show up at Social Security as W-2 income. And they're like, oh, here's W-2 income. That's part of the earnings test. You just need to point out to them what it was, and they should fix it. Because okay. other taxable income, there's tons of other forms of taxable income. They're not pulling that. What they're looking for is self-employed income that you're reporting and W-2 wages that get reported, which you usually don't. Your employer is going to report that. So that's where they that's the key areas where social security is picking this up and there's a lot of boxes on your W2 for various forms of remuneration and so most of the data they're going to get is from that for an employee 
But then self-employed people, of course, they look at that a little differently because you report that on your tax return through usually Schedule C or, or something like that. So, Well, you essentially were saying what I was trying to say. I just didn't say it correctly. I don't think Social Security can see that that was a stock option and it needs to be brought to their attention. Correct. Yeah, that's, that's why they made this mistake almost for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what I was trying to say. Okay. Next one, Chris, uh, is an Irma <clears throat> question that's not really a question. How's that? Mm. It is, I thought, a good opportunity to talk about SSA 44. So this question came in with the title comment. I'll treat it more as a PSA, public service announcement from a listener, Mm -hmm. just sharing one of the issues he had with trying to file form SSA 44. So I thought you could chat more about what form SSA 44 is, get people to understand a little bit about it. Don't spend too much time on it so we can get to other questions, but if you could opine for, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, four, five, six minutes on SSA 44, do you think you could? Oh, I think I can do that. All right. Uh, He does give a hint. So he is from the state with the Baseball Hall of Fame. I didn't know the answer to this either. Yeah, I uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. I know the Football Illinois. Hall of Fame. No, no, not Illinois. I have to keep guessing. Uh, no, all right, I'll um, try. Um, Kentucky. <laughs> no, no, not Kentucky. Many songs have been sung about this state. Or I don't think the state, but a certain city in the, this state. That shares the same name as the state. Can't get any more easier than that. Okay. I'm hoping that's New York because that's the only one New that York. comes to mind. <laughs> he didn't give all those other hints. Okay. Those, those are from me. That was off the top of my head. That's how fast well, I think. I'll have to admit I'm not an avid baseball fan. Otherwise, I probably would have known that. So he's from the state of New York. He mm-hmm. just wants to share an experience he had. Mm-hmm. He says, despite what form SSA 44 says... When I called our local Social Security office to set up an appointment after almost an hour on hold, there's government efficiency right there for you, Chris. I was told that they don't make appointments for SSA 44. I was able to ask questions on the phone, but the answers were very confusing. I made an attempt to file the forms for my wife and I, and now I'm holding my breath that our SSA 44s get approved. So I guess he just wanted to share that even though it mm. says you can call them for information, apparently yeah, they don't right like the to top. answer questions on it. Yeah. So I don't. I think this is going to be variable around the country with your local offices and how busy they are. But it does say, and I just pulled up SSA 44 so I could read you pieces of it that are, might help us you know, shed light on this. But right at the top in bold, the very first paragraph, it says, you know, blah, blah, blah. You can file this form, period. And then the last sentence, if you prefer to schedule an interview with your Social Security office, call. And they give the number, which sounds like this person did. Now, I have heard many times that a lot of the Social Security offices around the country are still limited on appointment making. Now, just because they wouldn't schedule an appointment doesn't mean you can't walk in. Now, 
that may or may not be enjoyable for you, depending on how busy your local office is. Also, no, you don't have to go to the local office in your town necessarily. So I've heard of some people driving maybe an hour to get to maybe a little town that happens to have a Social Security office that isn't nearly as busy as maybe their more localized office. Social Security is a national program. You don't have to go into your local office to to deal with stuff with them. You can go in anywhere. So maybe there's a little, little tip. But before I dive into SSA 44, I want to make the point that if you all out there are frustrated with the customer service from Social Security, uh, Washington, D.C. is who you need to blame. And the reason I say that is if you look at the funding for Social Security over time, over the past 15 years or so, all that time, and you baby boomers out there listening to the show, there's a lot of you. So there's a lot of people now with Social Security, far more requests for help because there's far more people claiming Social Security now than 15 years ago. The requests and the demand has gone up because there's so many more beneficiaries. That's what you are when you start collecting uh, you know, your, your Social Security benefits, etc., but the funding on in real terms, even though there's been, there's been some inflation adjustments, it hasn't adjusted for the workload by any means, any reasonable measure. And guess you know who controls that? Congress controls that. So there's your culprit right there. Social Security, actually, as much as they get knocked, and we certainly point out when they make mistakes, and mistakes, unfortunately, are more common than they should be as far as what they tell you about the rules or or you know certain aspects of Social Security, um, they are underfunded, point blank, for, for customer service. And so um, there it is. I'll just lay that out there. This is another example of, of that. You should be able to do what it says. Call, do an interview over the phone. They'll walk you through it or set up an, to go in and see them personally. And in some areas of the country, you can do that. This person ran into a roadblock. So how do you overcome it? Well, essentially do what they did, which is fill it out to the best of your ability and send it in. If something's wrong or they deny it, that's not the the final say. You can always appeal it. You can then take the denial down to the office and talk to them about it or call and get more information about why it was denied. Maybe it was you filled it out wrong or, or what have you. Uh, a couple things to keep in mind. Keep in mind that you, uh, if you're married and you're both collecting um, or you're both on Medicare, that you both need to send in your own independent uh, SSA 44s to request relief uh, from the Medicare premium surcharges, which is what the SSA 44 does. So little tip there, it's not obvious. It's fairly obvious because there's only one signature line, but some people believe if the, if the, you know, the person listed first on the tax return fills it out, then it'll apply to both. And that's not true. You'll have to fill it out for both of you. But if if you, it is a little daunting looking, but if you read through it carefully and slowly, it does walk you through what to do in the instructions. And so I would say do the best you can um, and uh, send it in. And if something's wrong and you think that they misjudged it and denied it inappropriately, you can always uh, turn around and appeal it. The frustrating part is you're going to be paying Irma all the time while this process is in play. So if they ultimately approve it, they'll pay you back all the extra that they've charged you, but it will be a little annoying that they might be charging you more uh, for, for a while until you get this resolved. So I guess a few tips there to maybe uh, smooth this out for people. But I'll stop there since I was trying to limit it to get on to some other questions. Okay. 
I think you answered it adequately. Thank you. Well, thank you. All righty. Let's get to the new question of the week. I don't think I've got one, two, three, four, five. Looks like five questions I'm going to try to get through, but I don't mm-hmm. think we're going to be able to do it. Some of these are going to require much more in-depth answers than mm-hmm. than others. But let's get to the new question of the week, if I can find it. Okay. This came in just a few days ago. So we like to do, folks, a new – well, actually, I'm supposed to do an annuity question first, then the new question. Well, we'll do the new question of the week, then the annuity. We'll, we'll switch it up. We'll be, we'll be radicals today. So we're going to do the new question of the week first. That's where I tried to get a question that somebody sent in this week and try answering it. See if they give a hint. Oh, no hint. Oh, wait a minute. No, they do give a hint. Let me see. Ah, oh, you'll never get this. I wouldn't have got it either. Hi, Jim and Chris. I am from the state. And no Googling. Make sure you're behind is sitting on those hands. I do that all the time. I never do that. All right. I am from the state that gave the world spam, water skiing, and Tonka trucks. I know where that is. How the hell did you know where that is? Because I've been to the spam museum. You have not. There's a spam museum? Absolutely. All right. What state? Minnesota. Yes. Are you serious? There's a, Minis- mm-hmm. there's a spam museum? Yeah, Hormel, based out of Minnesota, has a huge spam. I don't know if they make spam there, but they still make pork products, which is their specialty. Uh, Austin, Minnesota, there's a spam museum where you can tour, the find out about the history of spam. It's a lovely little town. Um, uh, very popular... Um, Loose meat sandwiches there as well. Um, but that's not spam related. But the spam museum, that's where I first tried my favorite spam flavor, which is very difficult to find the Tocino flavored spam, which is very popular in Polynesia, I believe, or Philippines. Uh, it's uh, super tasty. And uh, yeah, and Tonka is probably from the Minnetonka uh, Indian tribe up there. But uh, as soon as you told me spam, I had it. Wow. Okay. I didn't think you would get it. I didn't know that. See, the things you learn, folks, on the Retirement and IRA show, way beyond IRAs and retirements, there is a spam museum. I'm going to have to go see the spam Mm -hmm. museum someday. Did everybody sing the Monty Python song when you were there? I think there was some weird reference to it, but there, there was no one was singing there, no. Okay. All right, as for their question, my husband is 67 and I'm 62. We will start to draw from our traditional IRAs. What should we consider when deciding whose accounts to draw from and in what proportion? My accounts are larger than my husband's because he was on disability. My accounts are 75%. My husband's are 25% of our IRA assets. Should we take 75% from mine and 25% from his? Or do you think we should focus on his first because he is older than me? Or maybe I should focus on mine first because it is the higher of the two. Or does it even matter? Thanks for what we learned through the podcast and for the planning assistance. 
Okay, well, I guess we helped them on the podcast. Very good. Well, let me start with, it might not even matter. And then you can get into what you say. (laughs) It might not even matter. But my thoughts were, generally speaking, if you need the money and you're going to start withdrawing from the accounts, you said your husband is old. He's five years older than you. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if more tax planning is going to be necessary in your situation. But he is going to have to start taking RMDs, need it or not, in another, well, he's 67 now, so another three years. You don't have to take RMDs for at no. least nine or ten more S- years. Six, six years. Who? Him. You did bad math. 67 to I 73 s- is six years. I said six years. You said three years. Did I? Are you sure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty sure. You know, I had a stroke three years ago, right? Maybe that's where the three came from. Popped right into your mind. Popped right into my head. I could have sworn I said six. You sure I said three? Seriously? Either way, it's six. So well, I know it's six. I thought uh-huh. I said six. I didn't realize I said three. That's I, dangerous. I, my I, mind is thinking six. My mouth is saying three. Hmm. It's not good. We'll look into that after the show. We'll have to. Back to this question. I'm thinking your husband's is the smaller of the two. He's going to be forced to take money out. I don't know if you need all of these distributions, all of the RMDs or not. But my thought would be perhaps debiting from his first might be the better option. Because if you debit from yours first and now six years later, he's being forced to take RMDs. May I, Again, I don't know your situation, but maybe the RMDs are more than what you need and you're going to be forced to take it. It's going to take some projections on your behalf to kind of see what your situation six years from now is going to be, what the projected RMDs will be. <clears throat> and if you're intending to perhaps try to keep your income low to do some type of Roth conversions or something, maybe it would make sense to try to get his IRA gone even in the next six years. That way, there's going to be no forced RMDs until you have to start taking your RMDs. And then you can just take voluntary con- distributions from yours, the larger IRA, during the period between when your husband is 70 and free and you're waiting to turn 73 and have to start your own RMDs and she might hit 75. I yeah, hers going to be 75. They're going to straddle here. I, I think she might be a year too short. I think she might've missed it by a year, no. um, but she's going to be close. You're either going to be 73 or 75 listener uh, for yourself. Yeah, a 62 year old today would be 75. Okay, so which means you don't have to take RMDs for 13 more years. Your husband has to start them in six, maybe concentrating on doing the withdrawals from his IRA first will get you to a point where he has no more RMDs. You don't have to take RMDs. And now for at least a period of time, you're in control of your income, not the government. You take out as much or as little as you want or need from a use standpoint. In other words, how much money do you need to take out and use? And from a tax optimization standpoint, how much money do I want to convert or not? So you're going to be, I think, 
maybe, I, again, I don't know the numbers, but my gut is telling me they might want to concentrate on his, not necessarily hers, or this proportional idea. Mm-hmm. Now, if the two of you have agreed for one reason or another that both of you will equally pay for the family's expenses, then yes, your proportionate suggestion might make sense. But unless you don't have that that rule as a family, my gut is telling me concentrate on his. What's your thought? First, I like to, I guess, point out that people don't have to be afraid of RMDs necessarily. Where we pay such close attention to RMDs is when the RMDs projected for someone in retirement are so large that they're causing you at that time to be forced to make distributions into unfavorable tax brackets where you possibly could have gotten money out of those accounts on your terms prior to the RMD age and in a more favorable tax bracket. So that's why we pay so much attention to RMDs. And there's a lot of side effects too. Those big RMD spikes could, maybe it's not really a tax bracket concern so much for you, but maybe it triggers IRMA or other you know tax side effects out there. There's lots of things that RMDs might trigger, but if you were, if, if generally, if you're going to take the money out voluntarily because you need it to spend, the fact that it's, quote, an RMD is irrelevant. If you were going to take it out anyway, which some people are in that case, their distributions for their intended spending exceed what the RMD would normally be. If that's you, then there's not nearly as much concern. If the RMDs without proactive planning, and this is a, a little bit of the proactive planning is deciding who you're going to, whose account you're going to take out first. Um, if the RMDs are so large that it causes you concern about your tax situation once RMD age hits, then immediately what Jim said, I think, holds a lot more uh, value in that, boy, we've got this ticking clock here. We've only got six years to to battle his IRA before we're going to be in this RMD situation, which we've identified as troublesome. So let's do something about that now over these coming six years, either distribute it, convert it, do something. Uh, and we've got a little more time on hers. Now it all is going to depend on the numbers. Um just because it's seventy five twenty five, if the values, if it's seventy five thousand dollars for her and twenty five thousand dollars for him, the RMDs are not going to be scary. If it's you know seven and a half million for her and two and a half million for him, it's still seventy five twenty five. But that's a whole another ball game of dealing with the tax ticking tax time bomb. So yes, the, the your specific numbers are going to um, play a large part, but. Um, generally, yes, I think digging into his first, unless there's an overriding reason not to, is generally um, where people land on this. But, um, you know, it, it's all going to depend on your specifics. That was my cue? That was it. See, I have to pay attention. I have to be on top of things. Well, I pay attention to yours. You'll notice, like when you say three instead of six, I jump right in there. It's I could have sworn to said six. Are you really? Wow, that that bothers me because I, well, I knew one the of math us, was one six. One of us has a mental di- glitch then because either you said six and I heard three, which is troublesome, or you <laughs> thought six and said three, which is which troublesome. is also troublesome. Yeah. So 
one way or another, we have a problem. We'll, we'll dig into it. One way or another, one of us is in trouble, (laughs) but, uh, I don't know which one. See, now I'm going to have to listen to the podcast to find out, uh, if, if, if I did that or not. Yeah. It's around the 28, 29 minute mark, just to let you know. Okay. I'll keep that in mind. All right. Let's get to a annuity question. Even though this is a rather narrow focused specific annuity question, I think it can apply to many people. The concepts of what this man is asking can apply to people who who may not have the particular annuity he has, an annuity that we're familiar with here at the firm. Um, So let me just jump into his question. Dear Jim and Chris, my state hint for Chris and he he takes the state hint and kind of makes it a a, a, um, a twofer, if you will, a state hint, a state trivia question and a general trivia question. And we're not going to start doing this. Please don't ask Chris regular trivia questions, but I'll make an exception in this one because I think you should be able to get both of these. Hmm. I knew both of these. I think you can do this, Chris. I have faith in you, Chris. Don't let me down. You ready? Mm-hmm. Are you ready? I'm ready. Well, you didn't say anything. You just, there was silence. I am from the state that is home to ESPN. Can you name that state and what the abbreviation ESPN stands for? Seemingly, few people know this, according to him. Was that the, he said there's two hints? I'm from the state that is home to ESPN. So what is the two. state? Say what? I thought you said there were two Wait. hints. And what? No, two questions. And what does uh, ESPN stand for? Oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, pay attention. ESPN. I think I think I said six. You heard three. Yeah. I think it's about, you. You're off uh, this morning. Georgia. No. Hmm. Further north. Can't believe you're making me guess multiple times. I thought it was a one and done kind of deal. The state is uh, Connecticut. Do you know what ESPN stands for? No. Uh, employee stock purchase network. <laughs> network. <Yeah. laughs> no. Entertainment and sports programming network. Uh, ESPN. And it's Connecticut. Has it always been Connecticut? It's always been Connecticut, yeah. Oh. To the best of my knowledge, it was always founded in Connecticut. Okay. I could be wrong on that, but I knew it was based in Connecticut. And I, the reason I knew it was Entertainment and Sports Programming Network, when I was a kid, when ESPN first came out, I wasn't really that into sports like I am now. And, you know, cable was in its infancy and having all these channels was cool. And I was always bored with ESPN. I kept thinking, where's the entertainment? This is just sports. So I always thought the name was silly, ESPN. There's no entertainment. It's all sports. But it's the Entertainment and Sports Programming Network. Okay, I have an annuity question. I own a quote-unquote vintage fixed annuity from 1997. It is a TIAA traditional account. And that's why I said, Chris, we're familiar with this annuity. We run into it quite a few times. Mm-hmm. If you are a employee of a university, you most likely have or have access to this annuity. Mm-hmm. So he continues, this annuity pays four to four and a half percent interest every year. I'm considering holding this account 
as it is until I reach 70. He's 55 now, Chris. Until I reach 70. And then potentially using this account to annuitize to help cover my minimum dignity floor. So in effect, I do have a deferred income annuity. What do you think of this idea to hold on to this TIAA traditional fixed annuity and maybe annuitize it later in life to help cover my minimum dignity floor? He does He does write a lot more, I'll skip it, but he does acknowledge, Chris, and listeners, <coughs> that he must take the TIAA annuity out over a 10-year period if he doesn't annuitize it. If he right. doesn't turn it from a noun into a verb, he acknowledges he has to close it over 10 years. At face value, I'm not against what he's doing. This particular annuity, folks, from TIAA, a lot of people purchase it but don't understand it. At least he understands it because mm-hmm. we run into people all the time, uh, very, very conservative investors, and we're opening this annuity for its relatively high and stable annual growth. But then when they go to take the money upon their retirement, TIA is telling them, no, 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 this is an annuity. And you have to take it out over 10 years. You just can't close it and take the money out. It's going to take you 10 years to get the money out. Or you could annuitize it. In other words, the verb, take the noun, turn it into a verb, tell TIA to keep the money that's in the annuity and just give you a lifetime stream of guaranteed income. Mm-hmm. I think the 10-year payout uh, surprises many, not all. Some people mm-hmm. like this gentleman understand how it works, but many people don't. And that's what surprises them when they realize I can't get this money out in a lump sum. Well, I can't. It's just going to take me 10 years to do it. And you got to take it out in 10-year chunks. You can't move it um, out in one lump sum into an IRA or something like that. He's essentially, folks, saying, hey, I know I'm going to need more secure income later in life. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure when. I'm 55 now. I might hold this to 70. He also indicated he might even go longer before annuitizing it. I think he likes the safety of it. He he did indicate in here, folks, for those who are wondering, I'm not reading his entire email. He has ample other dollars that he moved out of TIA that were not in this annuity, manages them himself and is using them for growth. So he does have a growth option for those of you who don't think he might not have a growth option set of uh, tax deferred assets. He does. So At face value, I'm not against what he's doing. Mm -hmm. He does call it a deferred income annuity, and he's just wondering, what do we think? And I think he's asking us, Chris, because we're not fans of buying traditional deferred income annuities at 55 to use later at 70. And he's correct. We're not fans of that. In a traditional deferred income annuity, you buy the verb right away, the income stream. This is still a noun. 
He's putting money in just a noun. He's putting money in a product. It's it's not mm-hmm. any type of action to it. He's just putting money in it and getting four to four and a half percent guaranteed fixed every year in interest. Later in life, if he needs the money to help cover minimum dignity floor, he'll annuitize it. If not, he's going to withdraw it, recognizing it's going to take him 10 years, though, to close it. That would be my caveat to this product. You're going to have to, if you don't want to annuitize it with TIA, then it's going to take you 10 years to get your money out. Or, and I would recommend this to anybody, get multiple quotes from multiple insurance companies before annuitizing any annuity. Maybe TIA, this fixed account annuity, isn't going to pay you as much money that you could have gotten somewhere else. That's going to be an issue because you're not going to be able to close this annuity and go buy a higher paying income annuity. So do keep that in mind. If you keep this, you're kind of locking yourself into annuitizing with TIAA and not getting competitive quotes. You can get the quotes, but you're just not going to be able to move a lump sum of money that's greater than 10% of the value of the annuity out of that annuity and into another annuity that is willing to pay you more. So that would be a downside. However, back to my initial statement where I said Chris and I are not fans of buying traditional deferred income annuities. That's where, let's say at 55, he continues to put money in a traditional deferred income annuity. You do not have access to your money. This man's going to have access, limited access, I'll admit, but access. He's not annuitizing it. In a traditional deferred income annuity, the 55-year-old you in this case, because this gentleman's 55, the 55-year-old you, if you bought a traditional deferred income annuity, has made the decision already to the 70-year-old you or older because he said he may go past 70. But he's a 55-year-old who buys a deferred income annuity is deciding today what the 70-year-old them is going to want. And that's what Chris and I are against. We think the seven-year-old you should be the one who makes the decision because a lot can happen between 55 and 70. Maybe lifetime income is no longer important because sadly you've been diagnosed with a, a terminal disease or something's happened to you where your life expectancy is a lot shorter or something else is going on and you just for one reason or another don't need the lifetime income anymore. So we're against people in their 50s and 60s even, buying a lifetime stream of income now and locking the older them into taking the income and that's it. So that's why we're very hesitant on deferred income annuities unless they're in a QLAC wrapper and they're doing other things and getting other benefits from the QLAC, which go beyond this question, so I won't get into it. What he's doing Chris, and I'm not overly against it, minus the caveats I've said. He's viewing this as a deferred income annuity. He's saving money safely in an annuity, getting a little bit of guaranteed income, uh, interest income every year, compounding inside. He intends to annuitize. He's not quite sure when, doesn't think it'll be before 70, but could be later. And he's just wondering if we think it's okay the way he's doing it. I don't have a problem with it if you are comfortable with my caveats. 
you're pretty much locking yourself into TIAA as the annuitization company in the future. Competitive quotes, although you can get them, if you found a company willing to give you more dollar for dollar, you're not going to be able to take a lump sum of money and move it to that other company. But if you're okay with that, I'm all right with what you're doing because you're technically not annuitizing. You're not locking the 70-year-old you into annuitizing. The 70-year-old you will have some flexibility, not as much flexibility if it wasn't locked in the TIA annuity, but flexibility nonetheless. My only other caveat that I will say if you are still only getting 4 to 4.5% interest, now that interest rates are quite a bit higher, you can get right now in bank CDs 4.5 to 5. You can get in multi-year guaranteed annuities um, 5 to 5.8. So you're not getting, relatively speaking, a lot of interest right now. But if this is the minimum it can ever go, and that might be why you've held it for so long, especially when interest rates were sub 1%, and if TIA was still giving you 4 to 5%, that's good because interest rates could drop low again. I would just hope TIA has increased this interest a little bit for you. Um, over interest the on year. that is usually is variable with interest rates. So okay, he good. was quoting probably the average that he's experienced. I don't know. He just said, and he sent this just a few weeks, a few months ago. I, I'm telling cool. you, the TIA traditional isn't a fixed rate at four, four and a half. I've never seen one structured like that. Okay. And they are variations from employer to employer a little bit. Um, you know, what you described about it is is generally true for most. You know, that 10-year stickiness Although I've seen some at 84 and I've seen some plans where people are, have the TIA traditional and it's fully liquid. You can take it all out. That's the exception by far. But, but that uh, employers that go to TIA to administer these plans have the ability to kind of customize it to a certain extent. So you'd want to make sure, and this is where the confusion comes in for people. There's not like a place you can go look up and it says, this is exactly how this works and everyone's works this way. They do have a little bit of variation and it can be difficult, which is one of the knocks on the, in the world of annuities, right? How confusing they are. And, um, I would put TIA in that same exact boat. It's more confusing for people to understand than it probably ought to be. Um, but you need to, you know, if you're curious about exactly how yours works, you need to contact TIAA and ask them some of these pointed questions about what your options are. And if it's liquid or you're stuck in this 10 year, uh, or some other, I've seen an 84-month like monthly installment option on a couple of times. So we do run into these quite a bit. And, and when I first started running into them years ago, I thought they were it was all consistent because they were all named the same thing, right? TIAA traditional. But they can actually have a few variables uh, in some of the, quote, features <laughs> or restrictions. But historically, they interest crediting has been pretty good on them because you have... Uh, signed up to this kind of sticky deferred annuity. Most deferred annuities, if you didn't annuitize, 
you could take the money out in a lump sum. It might be a surrender charge or something for a period, but eventually you've got this lump sum. By them having the vast majority of people stuck in this 10-year minimum payout, it's a lot stickier. So they can invest your funds on their end a little differently, and that's historically led to um, a little bit of extra interest crediting uh, effectively for you because you're giving up that liquidity or access to that money even before you've annuitized it. So... Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, they're, everything Jim said is absolutely applicable. And whenever you're looking at switching from one of these into something else, you compare what else is available. The annuitization rates that I've seen on most TIAA traditionals have been pretty solid compared to what's in the open market at that time. So it's worth comparing. And, um, you know, the biggest downside is down the road, you just don't need the income, but you've kind of, you know, got this in your plan and and if you change your mind you've got this 10-year period to wait to get the money out which is kind of annoying um so it's all you now i forgot i was muted i keep muting unmuting so i never know okay perfect all right now we can go quicker through these let's see if we can okay. see how many we can get through okay this one no state hint no state at all, actually. So I have no idea where they're from. That should make it faster. It should be. A conduit trust was beneficiary of an IRA mm-hmm. prior to secure one. So this is prior, folks, to uh, January 1st of 2020. Mm-hmm. So at least four years ago. It has been taking required minimum distributions based on the trust beneficiary's life expectancy. Mm-hmm. Let's call the trust beneficiary George. Mm-hmm. I wonder where they came up with that name. Hmm. I have no idea. No. The inherited IRA has been open since 2007, so obviously more than four years. Now the trust is going to terminate in a few more weeks. Oh, goodness. When they, Oh, good. They only sent this in in December, so hopefully it's not too late. Now the trust is going to terminate in a few more weeks when George reaches the age designated in the trust. When the trust terminates, the inherited IRA with the trust as beneficiary will transfer to a new inherited IRA with George as the owner. Mm -hmm. Can he continue to take RMDs based on his life expectancy as was previous done with the IRA. This is a complicated but easy question. So what we have here, folks, is back in 2007, when the stretch IRA was allowed, someone passed away. Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess George was a minor at the time. So they created a trust as beneficiary of the IRA, and George was beneficiary of the trust. Mm -hmm. I'm also going to guess, based on what she said, it's a conduit trust, but it really doesn't matter if it was conduit or or, uh, discretionary, but let's just assume it was a conduit trust. 
And George was the only beneficiary because she's not making any mention of other beneficiaries. And she said it was set up to send out distributions over George's life expectancy. So prior to the SECURE Act 1, January of 2020, you could create a trust, name it as beneficiary of your IRA, then name a human as beneficiary of that trust. And as long as you could, quote unquote, see through the trust, write to the beneficiary, and if George, and it's uh, just him, and if George is the only beneficiary and he's human, you can use George's life expectancy. Now, there's many caveats to this. There are ways to name multiple beneficiaries and, and do other things. I'm not getting into them here. So he's, I'm just trying to describe Jim's to you describing the I, old rule. Correct. Just and clear. I'm describing what I think is happening here. Yep. So you have George, the life expectancy of his. Let's just say George had 53 years life expectancy. I have no idea what it was when, when he inherited. Uh, let's say 63 or 73 years, let's make him a a minor child. So his distributions are relatively small if he had 73 more years of life expectancy when he inherited it. But now in 2024, the trust specified for one reason or another, the trust will disappear and the assets pay out to George. And she's asking, Is it possible to do what she described? Can the trust just distribute out the IRA kind of as one, if you will? And can George create a beneficiary IRA? He can't move it to his own IRA, but can he create a beneficiary IRA to receive those assets? So he still never touches them. The trust is gone now. It can just be a regular beneficiary IRA with him as the beneficiary. And can he continue taking the distributions over his life expectancy? Or is now Secure Act with the 10-year rule going to screw this all up when the trust dissolves And the IRA is, quote unquote, paid out of the trust. The good news is everything you hope to be able to do, you can if the custodian will allow it. If not, you might want to find a custodian that will allow it. But there is absolutely no problem. This is a grandfathered account. So there's no problem because pre-secure you could do exactly what this woman is asking. She's now worried that post-secure, somehow the 10-year rule is going to reach its ugly head in there and say, nope, because of secure, and this is being distributed from the trust-owned IRA into a beneficiary IRA, the 10-year rule applies. No, it's been grandfathered. You might if you probably have done it already, you sent this in early December. But if you haven't done it already, if you get some kickback from the benefit, excuse me, the custodian, find a custodian who will not give you kickback. You should be able to distribute it out 
put it into an inherited IRA that George is the beneficiary of and continue the distributions on the same schedule, the same RMD schedule. It doesn't reset. It doesn't start over. Just continue the same schedule and taking out the RMDs just like you were. Okay. I'm glad that there's that. Uh, a grandfathering, because I was worried as you were describing going through this, that it would be treated more like this George was the contingent beneficiary. And the, and the when the trust dies, essentially, that as contingent, then if, if this wasn't a trust, if this was just a second person, maybe the grandparents um, had left it once to someone and then that person died. So the contingent being George, George only gets 10 years at that point, even though it was originally stretched to the original person. So I was worried that was the direction this was going to go. So I'm glad that the trust can step out of the way and re- retain the old RMD requirements. Well, that's why the IRS coined the phrase see-through trust. Yeah. If you have a properly structured see-through trust, and obviously this was properly structured, and I'm not going to get deep into what a see-through trust is, what the elements have to be, what would have happened if this was an accumulation versus a conduit. There's so many rabbit holes we could go down and we don't want to. But in essence, Chris, the IRS just can see through and see George. They're considering the trust just uh, – it's it's there, but it's not. It's really going to George, right. and it's good. Nothing's going to change. It's just going to continue going to George. It just doesn't have the protections of the trust, which most likely prevented George, a conduit trust, folks. The best visual analogy: just just picture a, a, a pipe with water flowing through it, and at the end of the pipe, there's a one-way valve, exit only. It slams shut, and there's no way to go back in. That's a conduit trust, and that was often used with stretch IRAs, especially for minor beneficiaries in the past, that we're going to give our son the money or grandson or whoever he inherited it from, nephew, whatever. I'm going to give this person the RMDs every year based on their life expectancy, but I want some protection and control of this IRA mostly from his own bad decisions if they're young. I don't want to give them all this money. That's why they often specified a certain age in the future. That's not a requirement. But oftentimes the the creator of the trust would say, I don't really think he's going to make wise decisions now. He's a good kid. He's doing pretty good, but money can make you think stupid things. And as a teenager or a 20-something, I don't want him. They, he, he just might make bad decisions if he has all this money. But by 30, 35, 40, you can pick the age. There's no set number. This person who created the trust obviously chose an age that is reached in 2024. But at some given point, you no longer want that protection and control. You want him, if he wants to, be able to go get those dollars. So that's why the trusts would just, poof, disappear. But that doesn't force, never did, and has been grandfathered and and won't require the complete liquidation of the IRA. It just becomes a regular inherited IRA without that one-way valve, if you will, folks. George is going to be able to not only get money out from the RMDs, but willfully go right up that conduit pipe 
into the IRA and take out money on his own. So that's a very typical situation, what was Mm -hmm. described here, and that's just how it works. Okay, that was supposed to be a quick answer. (laughs) Okay, two more to go. Let's see if we can do this. Uh, They better be really quick. Yeah, they'll be really quick. We had this hint before, so you should be able to get this answer. I live in the state that has three of the longest bridges in the USA. Hmm. I don't think we've had that one. Three of the longest bridges in the USA. Uh, Because I didn't guess this one. I thought it was a state out west, so there's a hint. And it wasn't. I'm going to say Florida. No, Louisiana. Oh, fascinating. Okay. Uh, one goes over some lake. Another goes over a swamp, which wouldn't that be the entire state? Um, and then another goes over a basin. Hmm. So anyways, 24 miles, 23 miles, and 18 miles long. That's some pretty Whoa. serious bridges. Yeah. Okay. My company has been offering a Roth 401k for the last few years. And I have been contributing to it in order to improve my tax diversification. This is going to be more of an art answer. I'm going to let you answer this, Chris, than a science answer. But I know Chris will nail this one. I currently have 75% of my money in always taxable accounts, 12% in maybe taxable, and 13% in never taxable Roths. My wife and I max out our Roth 401k contributions in an effort to increase that amount. We also do backdoor Roth contributions every year. However, we make over $300,000 a year and we are squarely in the 24% bracket. Now, as I think of things, I don't feel I'm ever going to have $300,000 a year of income when I'm retired. And our minimum dignity floor is just $78,000. And that's including our kids and house mortgage, which both will be gone when we retire. Should I consider going back to making traditional 401k contributions and forego maxing out our Roth 401ks? I could use the tax savings now and use it to fund the backdoor Roth contributions we would still do. My thinking is when my income is lower after I retire, then I could start doing Roth conversions in a tax advantage mad- manner, assuming they are still available. I don't, there, there's no push listener to get rid of Roth conversions. If anything, they keep expanding the ability to do conversions mm-hmm. because they love the revenue now. So I don't see that being an issue. What says you? Hmm. Do you have any insights on how I could make this determination? Or what do you think of my line of thought? Thanks for all you do to us do-it-yourselfers. Yeah, you know, there's a fair amount of science here in that we can, I think, reasonably look at current tax brackets. They said they're squarely within the 24 bracket, which that draws my attention immediately because the 24 bracket 
is scheduled to revert in 2026, just two years from now, back to 28. Uh, so filling Roth at 24 sounds better than 28, and 24 is better than the bracket below it. The bracket below it right now is 22, is going to move to 25. So the the current bracket that they're in now, uh, at the rate that they're paying, and we're just talking federal, I don't know what state they're in necessarily. In Louisiana. Okay, so I, I don't know off the top of my head the, the income tax situation for uh, retirement accounts in Louisiana, but just talking federal, there is an opportunity here, and some people are even in their income levels are taking advantage of that because they're looking at it, well, 24 is better than 25 and certainly better than 28, and looking down the road, especially if one of us passes away, um, there could be some 32, 33% rates involved and 24 sounds pretty good when we're doing that. So looking at some reasonable projections to see the likelihood that you're going to end up in some of those unattractive brackets, particularly after the tax cuts and job act is, uh, set to expire, I think would be valuable. But I've also seen plenty of people that, uh, in the quest for income tax, dis- um, um, diversification, they realize late in their careers that they don't really have much in Roth and they have a big, much bigger percentage in traditional, maybe 80, 90% in always taxable. And they're, you know, here here on this podcast about the benefits of tax diversification and they frantically try to fill Roth. But when we look at the brackets, they're doing it and it just doesn't make any sense. And that might be your circumstances. It might be, you know, water under the bridge at this point that, um, you'd have to look at your situation and again, the levels and the RMDs as particularly, I would be looking at RMDs for a widow widower because uh, oftentimes people are fixated on their current situation, married filing joint, and they uh, aren't considering the real likelihood that one is going to pass away before the other. You're not going to both go peacefully in the night simultaneously. So there's going to be some period where one of you is filing as a single taxpayer um, which can be very punitive from a tax standpoint. So I feel like you got to look at all those things. There's not, this is a, definitely not going to be one of those where there's a general rule. It's really specific to your circumstances and, and some reasonable forecasting. I think will give you some guidance. We have to admit that we can't tell the future perfectly. So we're always be make, going to be making assumptions. But if, if you look at a few of those things, a strategy might pop out to you that, that certainly makes sense. Maybe full support for what you're doing now with all the Roth, or there might be every indication that that's too aggressive and you should just keep filling the traditional and bite the bullet and realize that you're going to end up paying all your taxes on all that uh, all that built up always taxable money in retirement and as long as you can do that efficiently there's you know it's not the end of the world yeah i might be a little more i don't want to say forceful but a little more favorable of stopping the payments again this is more mm-hmm. of an art than a science just because he said his minimum dignity floor now is 78, and that's including his mortgage and kids. Let's just say both of those combined are $1,000 a month. It's probably $2,000. Let's just say even 1000 a month. That's another 12000 a month off of his MDL. Let's keep everything in today's dollars. Let's not inflate certain things for inflation. Let's look in today's dollars. So he could have a minimum dignity floor of about 66000 maybe 56000 Louisiana is not an overly expensive state compared to other states. So an MDF of about fifty to 60000 I think, in, in Louisiana would be reasonable. 
He didn't indicate to me how much he wants to spend on fun. But even if he spent another 100000 on fun, he's only going to need income of about 150000 so, and and I don't see him spending a hundred k on fun. I have no idea. He didn't indicate that, but I just think he'll be in a significantly lower tax bracket than where he is now. And I don't know. Well, he'd have to drop two brackets. Say what? He'd have to drop two brackets. I don't have the brackets in front of me. Paying twenty four. He's paying twenty four right now. He'd have to drop through that bracket, which will be 28, all the way through the 25 bracket to get to the 15 bracket in order for him to be in a better tax situation than currently. So uh, that's a lot of drop. I think it's what you're saying is possible, but I'm not as convinced that that's going to happen very realistically as maybe you are. Okay. Without seeing numbers, without having crunched his numbers and, and seeing what yeah, the, and the future projections are. has a huge impact on this because that's going to drive the distributions for sure. Absolutely. And and I'm just, again, assuming uh, he's going to spend 100000 We've seen many, many people who have fund budgets of 15, 20, 25000 Right. And if that's the case, him and his wife will have less than $100,000 of income. And yes, doing conversions at that level would be better. That would definitely put them in the current 12, future 15 bracket. Now, if he feels, and listeners may be screaming at their podcasting device, taxes are going to go up, taxes are going to go up. He should do it now. He knows what he's paying now. So that that is something to keep in mind, listener. I don't know how much taxes are going to go up, but I also don't know what your income needs in the future are truly going to be. And if my uh, uh, assumptions that your MDF is closer to fifty or sixty thousand a year post mortgage and post children, if it is fifty to sixty thousand a year in today's dollars, and you have a modest fund budget of twenty or thirty thousand a year, I think you would be in the current twelve, future fifteen bracket. I think you would fall in there after your your personal exemptions and in the future when the standard deduction comes back, the standard deduction. I think you would be in a very low bracket and allow you to convert at lower prices than what you would be contributing today. Right now, you're going to be giving about a quarter of your every contribution of a dollar to your Roth. You're giving a quarter to the government. I think you could lower that to maybe a dime or, or a dime and a nickel to the government in the future. So again, it's so hard for us to tell you what to do because we haven't crunched numbers. I knew there wasn't going to be a straight answer to this. It's more of an art than a science answer. You should do some number crunching. Uh, Either answer could be correct, but I do like your thinking. Only you know what you think your final budget's going to be and what you guys are going to do on fun. As Chris said, it's your fun budget that can make or break your thoughts right now of um, switching back to a traditional 401k and doing conversions later. But I'm, I'm probably more in the, yeah, I think you should consider it category than Chris, but both of us are saying you need to do some more number crunching. Okay. Okay. Well, that'll have to wrap it. At this oh, point. We got through six, which is pretty healthy. Not, not. We didn't hit a set a record, but that's. Uh, oh, we did six, quantity. not five. We did six. Yep. Well, 
I send them to Jacob. So I missed one because <laughs> Jacob has five. I see. So yeah, that was number six on in my book. All right. Well, I missed oh. one. I better get it to Jacob. What okay. ja- what I mean by that, folks, is uh, Jacob will email everyone whose question we answer and let them know what show it's on. So I forwarded him five emails just now. So I missed one. Okay. Right. But good. We got six. Yeah. Sounds good. So I want to thank everybody for listening and sending in your questions. We'll do our best to get to your question. If you submit it, just send those right to Jim, jim at jimhelps.com. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, put in the subject line that it's a question for the podcast. And uh, you take care, Jim. I'm sure I'll talk to you soon. And everyone else will be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saunier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 